And welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast, which can be found on greenmajority.ca. That's right, Stefan. Yes, my name is Stefan Hostetter. I'm in studio with Dave Hostetter, and uh, Saren Kaster will jump in as teching, as always. Um, and to start off the show, uh, as, I, as I promised uh, on Twitter about 15 minutes ago, oh. uh, a poem. Oh. Yes. <laughs> By fact, whom? William Stafford. Oh, Stephen Hostetter sent you this poem. Yes, he did. <laughs> the poem, appropriately titled, is called Yes. <laughs> it could happen any time. Don't make me cut your mic, Dave. <laughs> so this is Yes by William Stafford. It could happen any time. Tornado, earthquake, Armageddon. It could happen. Or sunshine, love, salvation. It could, you know. That's why we wake and look out. No guarantees in this life. But some bonuses, like morning, like right now, like noon, like evening. And I start with that poem, in part because a theme of the show, or a, a, a way I'm, I'm going to come back to a couple times in the show, is, is this concept of every once in a while I find myself waking up in the morning and I, you know, as much as I shouldn't, I do, uh, you know, find myself sort of scrolling uh, through Twitter feeds as yeah, I turn to wake healthy. up. It's not healthy. I shouldn't no. do it. I'm aware of that. Um, and, and of course, my Twitter feed is just filled with the news of the, of the day. And uh, in those moments, you sort of end up staring into the face of the problem. Which uh, is what we do on this show. Which is what we do on the show. And, and, and then I try to imagine a different world, uh, only to, to walk back out into this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I often wonder if, if people find it as jarring as I do uh, to, to see the world uh, in, in all of its ways and then to walk out and be offered a 199 McDouble mm. uh, and, and un- try to figure out how those two things square. I suppose not everybody wakes up scrolling through uh, apocalyptic environmental scenarios on their Twitter feed. That's a good point. But I think, you know, maybe maybe that's if that's what we have to do to, to wake people up a little bit, then then maybe everyone should no one should wake up on Twitter. That's a bad idea. Yeah. But, stop stop waking up on Twitter, Stefan. But we should at least wake up with the knowledge that the system we have is poor. Mm-hmm. Um, on on the topic of the system we have is poor, uh, you've you, you've put together a, a series of sort of updates about uh, weather and climate, uh, mm-hmm. which uh you know, sets the tone for the rest of the show. We're so going to stare into the abyss. We're going to stare into the abyss a little we bit. We must wake up with it. We must go to bed with it. We must live with it. There you go. So two weeks ago, uh, listeners will remember how we mentioned how European meteorologist descriptions of June heat were becoming mythological in scope, with tweets about the arrival of hell itself and the symbolic screaming face discovered in the patterns on one of the heat maps. These sweltering conditions continued through July, with many European countries breaking the heat records that were only just set in the previous month. The latest data from the World Meteorological Organization has now confirmed that July, quote, at least if not equaled, uh, sorry, at least equaled if not surpassed the hottest month globally in recorded history. That previous hottest month was July 2017. If trends continue, the past five years will have been the hottest five on record. The 20 warmest years ever, since records began in 1880, have happened in the past 22 years, and these records are expected to be broken again and again 
as we move forward with our stalwart march unto doom. Continuing for a second here with temperature, all-time national heat records were broken in the UK, Belgium, Germany, and the Netherlands. The city of Paris also broke a new record, and alert Nunavut, which is usually only a little bit above freezing right now, hit 21 degrees Celsius on July 14th. The heat dome that trapped Europe has now moved over to Greenland, where temperatures are 30 degrees Fahrenheit above normal, and its ice sheet is hemorrhaging out into the sea. Half of the U.S. population was under a heat warning two weeks ago, and the U.S. military appears ill-equipped to deal with a 60% increase in heat-related illnesses over the last decade, as heat strokes in the Marine Corps more than doubled in the same time frame, and 17 military members have died of heat exposure simply by doing training exercises at U.S. military bases since 2008. I saw a man debunking global heating on YouTube by pointing out that a heat wave in 1901 killed 9,500 people in the eastern U.S. Another user concurred that facts were not relevant anymore, and that global warming nutcases were just trying to get out their anti-white communist agenda. I suppose these men were not told that 70,000 people were killed in a heat wave in Europe in 2003. Some scientists are now arguing that climate change is affecting every aspect of modern life. Two new studies, meanwhile, have come out regarding the history of climate change. The first study focused on those disturbingly adorable talking points of climate deniers regarding previous periods known as the medieval warming period and the Little Ice Age. The study found that these events were isolated regionally, and so are not even of the same category of change that modern-day global heating is, which is just that, a global phenomenon. Chelsea Harvey for E&E News quotes geographer Scott St. George as saying, quote, The familiar maxim that the climate is always changing is certainly true. <clears throat> but even as we push our perspective back to the earliest days of the Roman Empire, we cannot discern any event that is remotely equivalent, either in degree or extent, to the warming over the past few decades. Writing for Scientific American, Kate Marvel also highlights these instances of climate change in the past and points out that, while less extreme and occurring over smaller areas, they were in no sense benign. She notes, for instance, that stories of hungry, wandering children, prey to cannibal witches like Hansel and Gretel, date from a time of unusually heavy rainfall that rotted crops in 1300s Europe when people were eating dogs, cats, and corpses to survive. Today we are looking at what is called a potential multiple breadbasket failure. As Michael Mann pointed out in, in an interview with Amy Goodman, the way that global heating exacerbates extreme rainfall isn't even captured well in climate models, so its impact is probably currently underestimated. Indeed, there are still 1.6 million people in Mozambique facing hunger in the wake of those two record-breaking cyclones that hit southwestern Africa earlier this year. It has also been recently discovered that thousands of water bottles were abandoned by FEMA in a private farmland in Puerto Rico during a time when Hurricane Maria victims were contracting illnesses from drinking water gathered from mountain streams. FEMA claimed a surplus of water in its inventories and yet could not deliver enough water to thirsty survivors of the hurricane. All FEMA has given in response is a soulless acknowledgement of the discarded inventory. There is now a massive pile of expired water bottles, uh, therefore, sitting in a private field near San Juan as an atrocious symbol of waste and apathy for us all to drink up at our psychological peril. 
Lastly, climate activist Greta Thunberg addressed the French parliament about the climate crisis, but was boycotted by some conservative members, most of whom expressed opinions to the effect that her entire role is to frighten people into thinking we're all doomed no matter what. To which she replied, quote, it seems that they are more scared and concerned about me and some young people protesting than the actual problem. Extinction Rebellion activist Claire Farrell said on Sky News, quote, when you look at what's required in terms of international cooperation, it's like when the fire alarm goes off. People don't move out of a building quickly if nobody else does. They look around and they don't base their decision on how to act on the data that they have. They base it on what other people are doing. We did promise you the void. Um, so let me say unequivocally, uh, get out of the building. Um, if there is one purpose of this show, it's in, to encourage everyone to get out of the building uh, and to combat the gaslighting of the folks who are already running. Um, there's, there's actually a study that was done uh, a few years ago in which they had a set of people sitting in a, in a room and they actually started filling the room with smoke. So to, 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 symbol, so to, to make it seem as if there was you know, a, an actual fire happening. Mm -hmm. And they had some actors not move and not, not appear scared. Mm -hmm. and, and people would let us keep standing. People wouldn't leave the room. Like it was a, it was a actual, like it w people just looked around and if, if other people were, uh, were not scared, even as the visual evidence of a fire filled a room, the fact that other people weren't responding was enough to convince people that they somehow were still safe. And I think it's this element that gets me to this question that I sort of started off the show with, which is like, as we stare into this void and then walk outside and are offered a McDouble, uh, you know, it's the McDouble that's preventing the action. <laughs> you know, it's the fact that everyone else is acting as if nothing is going on. Um, and, and to jump very quickly uh, further up into that bit about that you talk about Greenland and, and the heat wave there, to give a sense of the scale of the problem. Mm. On Wednesday, July 31st, alone, in, in one day, 10 billion tons of ice was lost to the oceans by surface melt alone. 10 billion tons of ice melted in Greenland on Wednesday. One day. Saren. All right, sorry, you just, I can't pass up two perfect opportunities. One, uh, anytime anyone on this topic or any other is wondering, I don't understand with you know, X being the case, how people could do X or how people would act X. So just the, the larger category of, of the example, Stefan, that you just gave fall in. Anytime you're ever wondering that on that on this topic and others, what you want to Google for yourself is the Milgram experiment, M-I-L-G-R-A-M, -M, Milgram experiment. Google that, read it. The more you understand the content of that very uh, important study, the more you will understand how things like this happen. Uh, the second part of that is that just as a larger reminder, meta note on, you know, engaging with people on social media, I uh, stand apart from many of my colleagues and say that you should do that as long as you understand one important principle, which is that if you let someone ask uh, simply throw questions at you. You can you can make unfalsifiable claims all day, and so the the way this can be done is you can uh, if someone said, you know, I think gravity is true, I can ask you, yeah, but what about questions for hours 
it's impossible to, you can continuously ask ignorant questions that, that are confusing if you're intentionally trying to do that. The way to engage with anyone who's making any types of claims is you have to say, okay, there's this concept called the burden of proof, right? Global scientists, all of their effort, all of their work has come to one thing. You are now, uh, you now have the burden of proof because they've met their burden of proof. They've done peer review. You're allowed to disagree with them, but you have to provide an alternative explanation for the facts on hand, right? The point is, is that there isn't one that doesn't require a global conspiracy. And so if you just force people to say, okay, well, what's your alternative? How else do you explain these facts? You quickly expose them as someone who might as well be claiming that they were abducted by aliens yesterday. And so I do encourage everyone to engage with these people and simply say, great, what's your alternative? You're going to get us in trouble with all our alien fans. I respect people who say they've been abducted by aliens. <laughs> More so than they say that they can disprove climate change despite their lack of science education. The, because the one is a direct experience, the other is extrapolation. The to to sort of bring us back um, to the to sort of the the longer conversation because we're going to get a little bit more into some of the um, some of the other responses. I, I, I think this. I think I think what we often see and what we'll, we'll come back to again in a couple of ways is is this desire to find solutions that allow us to continue living exactly as we're living, um, and this desire to find solutions to uh, to give ourselves this uh, freedom to to. To, to not think about other ways of living. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think like, so just, well, we're going to go into talking about, there's a bit about trees that I've got to sort of at the end of this next conversation, um, but it really focuses on, you know, where we exist right now and how this world exists right now. So let's, let, there's a, it's amazing what the level of violence that this world is putting onto people who are fighting to actually put a different world out there. And that's what this next story is about. Yes, well, my juxtaposition is actually rather grotesque because I pivot from the horror into the, the, the goodness. So I apologize in advance. So mass protests are erupting in Colombia, uh, decrying the killing of over 500 activists after peace was supposed to have been made in 2016, following 50 years of conflict between government forces and the People's Guerrilla Army. Many of the activists killed since the rebels turned in their arms have been indigenous or Afro-Colombian people fighting for environmental causes and land rights. The full implementation of the peace process, which is yet to occur, is meant to protect these social leaders. Meanwhile in Brazil, 10 to 15 heavily armed rogue miners, emboldened by Bolsonaro's racist anti-environmentalism, have raided an indigenous village and murdered a community leader in an apparent effort to weaken the Wayapi tribe's resistance to the theft of their land and the destruction of the Amazon. Bolsonaro is ignoring the locals' account of the incident, has repeated his call to mine the Amazon in the wake of the brutal killing, and is casting doubt on his own government's horrific figures of the 39% increase in Amazonian forest loss over the past year. Annual destruction of the Amazon has been climbing steadily since 2001, and as Jonathan Watts puts it for The Guardian, quote, over the single month, the latest data shows destruction of more than 1,800 square kilometers, which is pushing the world's biggest rainforest towards an irreversible tipping point and eroding a globally essential sink for carbon dioxide. The government might now be looking to spend public money on fudging the numbers rather than tackling the problem, having run on a platform to boost Brazil's economy by chopping down the Amazon, which has been called the lungs of the planet. 
Amazon Watch claims that from January through March of this year, at least 14 illegal advances have been made by various industry groups into indigenous territories. France Seymour of the World Resource Institute told Inside Climate News back in April, quote, continued tropical forest loss pulls the rug out from under efforts to stabilize the global climate. For every hectare of forest lost, uh, we're one step closer to the scary scenario of runaway climate change because forests are not only store carbon, they continue to absorb it as they grow. A study from last year found that natural climate solutions like tree planting, grassland conservation, and fertilizer changes have the potential to mitigate 21% of all U.S. annual emissions. Some have argued that a global effort in tree planting itself has astonishing potential. In this vein, Ethiopia has now begun its bid to grow 4 billion trees this summer by getting its citizens to plant at least 40 seedlings apiece. This will mitigate carbon uh, while while increasing Ethiopia's forest cover, which fell 30% over the 20th century. If 4 billion sounds absurd, note that they were able to plant 350 million trees in a single day last month, smashing the previous one-day record of 50 million achieved by India in 2016. Government offices were closed in order to allow civil servants to take part in the tree planting. So there's a a couple things here. Um, and and one of them is 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 about the way that I think the the thought process around what to do to help the environment, quote unquote, um, is necessary. Um, and, and that is a pretty simple uh, call to action, which is forget conservation and support indigenous resistance. The 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 idea that you should be giving to quote unquote conservation efforts um, is is a is a way to keep money in particular hands that are not really getting, are not really experiencing this kind of violence, and are are not really the ones doing the work in some of the most important places. You know, the fact that you see Bolsonaro, uh, it's, it's not a, it's not, it is absolutely no way a accident that Bolsonaro in Brazil is 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 taking such an anti. Um, uh, indigenous stance as a way to push private interest, and 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 all of that is centered around the destruction of the Amazon. You know that is none of that is 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 by accident. Um, and so there's this. So like if you're going to give money and you want to preserve something, uh, and you want to you just, you just want you want more green cover, say, um, do not just give to these traditional conserv- conservation groups uh, and find these people who are living in these lands and and support their fight, because uh, as as other studies have shown, the the indigenous stewardship actually is better for the. Uh, for the actual lands themselves, then then just leaving them alone. The traditional conserv- conser- conservation is less effective, um, and 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 on this on this tree planting bit, I, I, the benefits of tree planting has been has been trending on environmental twi- on, on environmental Twitter for the past few weeks, uh, ever since a, some Swiss scientists published a study in Science uh, earlier this month arguing that planting a trillion trees was by far the cheapest way to tackle climate change. You've probably saw at least four or five articles that came out being like, so we just need to do plant a trillion trees, and and tree planting is a good idea. We should plant many 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 trees unquestionably. Uh, reforestation is an absolutely necessary part of this response. But I think what made everyone latch on to it was in part the idea that we could plant a trillion trees and then just keep living exactly as we do now. And, and that is a, a, a card game. That is, that, that is, a, that is building, a, that is a, 
a fabrication of a, a world that could exist. Um, you know, we, that the the idea that building a sustainable society is just a trillion trees away, A, ignores how many a trillion trees really is. I don't think anyone totally understands the, the scope of that, a trillion trees. But also it is a... It is a refusal to actually in, embrace the actual larger question and conversation, um, and so the these efforts. Uh, and, and I should say that the fact that you know the, the our Ford government here can't even plant you know you know basically cut a strategy to plant fifty million trees, I believe it was, um, or maybe, um, over the, over over in a time period, and then it gets absolutely immediately you know sh- shrouded by the fact that Ethiopia comes out and plants three hundred fifty million trees in one day. You know, mm-hmm. there it clearly proves that some people, at least in this world, are taking this a little more seriously than others. Hint: it's us that are not taking it seriously, um, and. And when we later in the show, we're gonna. I think in the last section of the show, we're gonna get we're gonna get into the sort of conversation around, um, in around, the idea that you can just change our economy with, uh, with, with with electric vehicles. And I think all of the those are these are tied up in the same sort of thought process that that just planting a trillion trees or just switching everything to electric vehicles or or all of these sort of. Um, ways that you could change society without actually changing society uh, are are all ways, I think, to to sort of hide the the real work that we have to do, the real scope of the problem, the real fact that to wake up every day and walk out into this world um, requires a a level of ability to think creatively about how to actually live differently. Um, and we'll get to that later. Uh, we're we're a little over the music break, so we'll head to music break in a half second. I believe you are back in the middle of the show with uh, with Lauren Latour. So we'll jump into a couple positive news stories, uh, and then uh, one very depressing story out of Ohio, um, and and then a little bit about coal miners. So, Saren, what are we listening to? The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast that can be found on greenmajority.ca with all the other links to the, sh- to the news stories we're talking about. We are... Uh, live uh, with Lauren Latour. Lauren, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. How about yourself? I'm quite well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my, in case you are tuning in the middle of the show, my name is Stephen Hostetter. Dave Hostetter is in the studio, as well as Saren Kaster. Everyone might jump in at some time, from, t- from time to time. And we're jumping in to a conversation about uh, coal and renewables and just how messed up Ohio is. So it has been known for some months that uh, now that uh, new renewables are already cheaper than coal in a lot of U.S. states, which is a trend that seems to be spreading around the country very quickly. There have consequently been industry executives with government ties uh, trying to fight the inevitable coal exodus. And yet even some pro-Trump people are now arguing that he should embrace renewables as a fiscally responsible investment even though renewables uh, growth did stall in 2018. And while some U.S. utilities are moving away from coal, Ohio has recently voted to gut uh, both its renewable energy and efficiency standards while bailing two coal uh, and nuclear plants out. 
As David Roberts puts it for Vox, quote, the bill would subsidize four uncompetitive power plants, remove all incentive to build more renewable energy projects, and cancel efforts to help customers use less energy. He continues, despite a tsunami of dark money supporting the bill, it was overwhelmingly opposed by ratepayers, business groups, free market conservative groups, environmental groups, and Ohioans generally. Its only support came from its only beneficiaries, the utilities that own the bailed-out plants, the employees of the bailed-out plants, the communities where the bailed-out plants are located, and possibly President Trump, who doesn't want to see coal plants closing during his re-election campaign. Roberts also points out that while nuclear power does represent a much-needed carbon-free energy source, the utility that is claiming the plants are unprofitable and so needs the people to bail them out is actually refusing to divulge the financial evidence, supposedly proving their unprofitability. On top of this, Ohio Republicans are acting a lot like Ontario's own Doug Ford in claiming that this move will save Ohioans money because the efficiency mandates that cost $4.50 a month will no longer apply. Those mandates, however, would have saved people money in the long run through cheaper renewables and increased efficiency. Yeah, so I, I should clarify, uh, I, Ohio itself as a, as a location is, is totally fine. Those running it uh, have, a, have more deeper problems. Um, and, and the one thing I, I want to say here before throwing you to Lauren is that whenever you hear the concept of the quote-unquote free market is the best way to solve the climate crisis, remember this story. Because if ever there's an example of how the market is not free, it is this story. This is a story of years and years and years of money uh, being poured into Ohio as a way to get this kind of bill passed, as a way to prevent change. You know, the game is rigged and those with entrenched power are going to fight tooth and nail to stop real action. And so the idea that we can uh, solve the problem through the free market, sure, that's like I'll have that conversation at the very least, but do not pretend that we live in a world where that is actually currently happening. Uh, Lauren, to you. Yeah, no, this is the this is the farthest thing from free market, and this is to me this is the kind of thing that exemplifies the hypocrisy of of a, I know I'm sort of tarring a whole group the same brush, but with a lot of conservative politicians and Republicans in the States, um, because, yeah, this, like you said, this is the absolute opposite of free market policy and politics. And, and you would think that any true conservative who is voting and cared about, I don't know, fiscal responsibility would be disgusted by this and appalled by it um, for all of the reasons that, that you said and that David reviewed. Um, I'd also like to point out to any readers who are or readers, listeners, who are interested in learning more about this, that the David Roberts piece on Vox is is really, really fantastic. He really digs into the weeds in a way that, like, yeah, made my eyes glaze over a little bit about two-thirds of the way through the piece. But if you're interested in learning more about this, um, David Roberts does really great writing on climate and environment for Vox all the time, and this piece is, is no exception. Um, one thing that definitely stood out to me when I was reading this is that, of course, when when... Uh, lawmakers are justifying this bailout. They say, well, oh, well, there are 4,300 4, people who would who would potentially be out of work should these coal plants and, and should these coal plants shut down. Um, and, and yes, those are 4,300 jobs that, that as communities we need to care about and we need to be concerned with. But how much better would it be that instead of propping up a dying industry and these businesses that are no longer viable – in this in this new economy, that that, that one hundred and fifty million dollars that 
taxpayers would be paying to prop that up? What what if that went into job training and that went into the renewable energy economy, which for all intents and purposes appears to be booming in Ohio? And and David Rob, David Roberts in his article lays out for us is is healthy and thriving. Well, it, it might no longer be now that now the programs have been slashed, but. But, but these jobs do exist, and they can readily exist if, if only we funnel the money into the right areas instead of propping up these dying industries. Um, and, and just that, that we've always been propping up these industries. These industries have been struggling for, for years now. This is the fifth time that First Energy has been bailed out specifically uh, related to these coal energy projects. Like, the first time was once when the plants were built, they needed government subsidization um, in 1999, when I guess the market underwent some restructuring, and then in 2008, and then again in 2016, and now again in 2019 2020. Like, <laughs> these, these businesses have never been as lucrative as, as they'd like us to believe it, at least in terms of money flowing back into public coffers. Yeah, and and for and for context, the the fact that you, there's four thousand you know jobs that might be lost uh, from this, the number of jobs in clean energy in on in Ohio is one hundred and twelve thousand. Uh, so the the idea that 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 this is the backbone uh, that can't be lost, you know, is is it does not stand up to any sort of real imagination. Um, well, and and also, sorry, further eighty, I think it was something like eighty three or eighty four thousand of those jobs are specifically in energy efficiency, so they're in lines of work that are saving people money in the long run. Anyway. Yeah, so yeah, energy efficiency, and that's exactly what's being targeted in some ways by this bill, right? This bill is there's a there was a I think it was in 1960s or 1970s, um, sort of video made by I believe it was I believe it was the Canadian uh, at the time Ontario um, uh, ut- energy utilities, and it was this it was this this sort of I was shown to us in an environmental class that I was in many years ago as an example of how how things have changed because the video is basically being like hey everyone use as much electricity as possible mm-hmm. you know like like it was like we have so much in like and it was because they had built an overcapacity and now wanted to sell it to someone and right. and this kind of move to be like no we don't don't want to do, you know, there are 82,000 jobs in energy efficiency, but let's slash all programs towards the, the, that will do that, you know, despite the fact that energy efficiency is unquestionably the cheapest option. You know, it's even cheaper mm-hmm. than it's even it's cheaper than even the, the even the most cheap type of actual power. You know, the, the ability that the amount of uh, payback you can get on energy efficiency is is is, is higher than almost every well, every other type of power. It's incredibly cheap if, you know, when done effectively. Um and and to sort of segue into the next story, the that when you when you think about the response, often I think you know, in the response even here is like you know, well, what about the workers who need this type of work? Well, it turns out that coal is not great for the workers either. Um, and as the, as the next story sort of highlights, so it's a short one, but uh, but an important little fact. So coal miners have been blocking a train from leaving a Kentucky coal mine for over three days now uh, because they haven't been paid by the bankrupt company for the last month of work they did prior to the company's collapse. The workers are living week to week and struggling to pay for groceries as food boxes are being assembled and letters are being written to creditors to try to ease the miners' mortgage payments. They're camping out in tents on the tracks. Yeah, my, my note for this is just chanting Green New Deal. Green New Deal, Green New Deal. Uh, but to you, Lauren. Yeah, no, like this is this is this is devastating, right? Like this, we we know that coal that that folks in the coal industry, especially in states like Kentucky, are really really struggling 
um, with the sort of the collapse of that industry there. And and unfortunately, what we're not seeing is government stepping up and providing providing the support they need. I know I know that that's that that's a blanket statement, and I'm sure there are lots of people that could correct me on that. They know there are these job recreation plants and. And that's awesome, but but that's not the story that's being told. The story that's being told is one of communities that are falling into disarray and people going without food, like you said, and people having to blockade trains. Um, and and what we need are our governments stepping up and and providing job training and providing alternative careers for these people and for these communities, because otherwise we're just going to have entire states as ghost towns once these industries collapse. Yeah, and and, and this is so much of an example of of the idea that. Th- the only option is to send these people back into the into the mines. You know, like the, mm-hmm. the, the the only way forward for these for these people is to is to is to is to give them a job specifically doing you know what is objectively a a very difficult and unpleasant job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is. It, I don't think I don't think too many coal miners would 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 go around saying it is that, that I think that it becomes part of your identity a little bit. But I don't think there's a a big argument for it being the most cushy or or pleasant experience. Um, no, and, no, black lung isn't a perk. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and 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 it, it, it not to harp on this too much, but it does get back to the sort of weird this weirdness of how often the idea that you know that the conservative uh, mindset or the sort of the Republican mindset or, or or often the Albertan mindset um, when it comes to the oil industry uh, is that the only way to help these people is to prop up these industries, and the only way to help these people is to give money to these companies that have been. Ex- extracting value from their from their very dangerous labor over a whole you know over over decades and, and centuries um, and yet th- where are they when you know where are they when when the Kentucky coal miners have to stand in front of this in front of a train to get paid you know where where is the Kentucky you know Republican Party that is finding a way to help these workers um, that is finding a way to care about them in some real way uh, and it's the idea that the the only way to help them is through is through helping the industry that's been that's been skimming money off the top of their labor the whole time to me doesn't you know it it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't stack up when they really need help who is there and the answer time and time again is not the republican party or the or the or the conservative party in in alberta depending on exactly you know where where you're going Mm -hmm. no exactly the only people these bailouts ultimately help in the long run are are the shareholders of these companies and people who are who are already sitting pretty people who are already millionaires yeah, and and, um, and and the way that these bankruptcy things work is that the first people they pay out are the investors, right? The, the like the the workers are not high on the list of people who get actually the money as the things go bankrupt. Um, no, exactly. The one the one note I do want to make, and and it's not based on anything that anybody said here today, but like is a note to like the environmental community is is we do need to be careful when we're having these conversations about about the coal industry and the oil industry is that we're not disparaging the laborers who work in those industries. We're not we're not referring to this as dirty coal. We're not referring to this as as sort of undignified labor. It's it's not that we, we can't vilify the laborers the way we have in the past. Um, we need to show our support for them and we need to we need to let them know that we understand why they work in the sectors they do. Um, and that ultimately this is about trying to provide a better future for everybody and not trying to vilify anybody in particular. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, we have three positive news stories, quick hits. Uh, before we before we finish the the segment, do you want me to read them all at once? Yeah, let's. Well, y- yes, let's do so all. So the once. European Investment Bank will stop giving loans to fossil fuel projects by the end of 2020. 
amounting to uh, 2.4 billion euros in funding taken away from the industry. And uh, California has made a deal with automakers to uphold Obama-era fuel efficiency standards that Trump has tried to kill. Passenger vehicles are to average uh, 50 miles per gallon by 2026, whereas Trump wanted to freeze the efficiency at 37 miles per gallon. And U.S. Congress member Ilhan Omar has introduced a bill to end landfills by making the U.S. economy zero waste as part of the Green New Deal. Yeah, so uh, the first one, um, which is the, but the European Investment Bank, uh, it, what's interesting about here is it, it's not it's not just removing two point five billion dollars of funding with the industry. That was how much money they gave la- last year. So this is a ye- this is a yearly sort of annually an- annually, mm-hmm. um, and and so this is just a it's and it's it's another example of one more place that these fossil companies will can't find future investment. And and that's so much of their existence is based on on, on future investments, um, that that as these as as each and you know there was the Norway sovereign wealth fund, uh, and as the investment keeps ticking up in all these different places, what you're doing is you're taking away more and more places where these companies can find capital, and that's and that's what's happening there, um, and so this is yet another place where they can't go to find capital. Um, uh, I, I have a thought about California, but I'll go to you first, Lawrence. Lauren, sorry. Um, yeah, no. This this story out of the EU, especially, is 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 great news, and it's the kind of thing where like it it popped up on like my newsfeed or whatever, and I kind of had to read it over a couple times. So I was like, wait, is this is this genuinely the positive news story? I think it is, and it is. Like, I'm I'm really really glad, especially like around subsidization specifically, that we're finally seeing some action from the government level. Because I mean, like, how long ago did the G20 say they were going to phase out fossil fuel subsidies? And there's been no movement from any party, least of all Canada, on actually phasing out those fossil fuel subsidies. So the fact that we're seeing that from the EU is really, really positive movement. Um, and even though, I mean, like, Canada is still going to be subsidizing <laughs> the oil industry to the tune of something like $3.3 billion, um, this, this movement from Europe is really, really fantastic. Yeah, yeah, and each like it, it's one of those things. Like it's another straw, right? It's just each time you get it's, it's harder to find that capital. It's hard to find that capital. Um, uh, to, to the second one uh, is a is kind of a particularly it has a bit of a Canadian uh, uh, element to it as well because I, what what is seldom understood, I think, is how important California is to Canadian fuel standards. Uh, which is basically that ca- in the same way, I don't know if anyone's remembered many years ago, there was that story that came out about how almost all uh, education textbooks in the South come are decided by this one board in in Texas because the te- because Texas buys so many books that if they decide what they want, everyone else just buys them along with them. Uh, the same thing is true about fuel standards in California. No one is going to make a car that cannot be purchased in California because California is like 35 million people um, and their cities are built in a way that is very silly and you have to drive everywhere. So there's uh, a number of reasons why California is. So California has this unbelievable, like pretty high uh, impact on uh, on on fuel standards to the extent where basically whenever Canada has increased its fuel standards, it's been l- largely in lockstep with California. Um, occasionally, Canada has been a little ahead of California, but generally speaking, it is it is it has been following this kind of move. And so, the fact that California managed to keep this going um, and and protect that 
uh, you know, is, is, is important for us, too, in part because you're already seeing, you know, conservative uh, leader Andrew Scheer coming out and saying uh, that he's going to scrap the fuel efficiency standard here um, as a way to, you know, as a quote unquote secret tax, which I'm not going to get into the silliness <laughs> of that. Um, but but that's but that's huge. Like the fact that they that, that California is has managed to maintain this is is very significant, given how car, car dominant we remain. Uh, so we're, we're coming to the end, but I want to give Lauren last thoughts on that, on anything else, uh, and then we'll go to the music break. Um, no thoughts on that. I think I think you kind of said it all. Um, I think the only things I wanted to briefly touch on very quickly were two, unfortunately, bringing it back around to sad news stories. Um, <laughs> there were two pretty big disasters in the in um, in oil country in the states this week. Um, there was a really big fire at an Exxon Mobil plant in Texas that injured sixty six people on Wednesday, and just yesterday in Kentucky, an oil refinery um, owned by Enbridge exploded killing one person and and resulting in seven missing um so i guess just something to sort of bring us back to reality i guess yeah i'm sorry i know it's very fair um and to highlight you know the 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 absolute need uh for for some sort of transition you know people are talking about on twitter the conversation around like when was the last time that i that a a um uh, a windmill exploded and, and, and injured 66 people. Uh, and it, the answer is never, in case you were wondering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not, yeah, it, it, to, actually what that does though is it, I think it goes back to this, uh, the, the point that you were making about the workers, which is that the, the jobs that we are hoping for people to be retrained for um, are jobs that are dangerous and we, we want these people to be safe. Like mm-hmm. we want our future children to be safe, but we also want the people who are currently working on these projects to be safe. Um, and and the way to do that is better regulation uh, and 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 a support uh, a retraining of those as they sort of can move on to to safer positions. Um, and so th- I think that's that that that's a, a sort of highlights the sort of importance there. Um, but thank you so much, Lauren, as always. Uh, we'll head to the next music break. We're coming back with uh, electric vehicles and the idea that they will probably not save us all. Uh, over to you, Saren. And welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our, or perhaps one of our wonderful radio syndicates, or perhaps on the podcast, which you find on greenmajority.ca with all of the links to the news. Um, that was a, a, a lovely calming song uh, for a uh, less than calm show. Although perhaps the, the voices on the show have been relatively calm if the news has not been. I, I actually wanted to say that um, all three of you, uh, yourself and Dave and Lauren, all had very sultry voices today. I don't know if you were all <laughs> drinking like peppermint tea before the show but <laughs> i uh, i um, tried to i tried to i tried to i'm trying to go deep in it's my, important in my to slow radius. down on yes. the radio that's that's we've been receiving that new that that post feedback for the entirety of the show yeah. uh and uh, i for one am trying to learn it so if i'm still talking too fast i probably won't get better than this mm. but dave it's, we've it's, got it's also about the motion of the lips as the tongue smacks against the teeth and the gums Maybe that's the real part that gets sultry. Mm-hmm. Well, let's um. get on to the news. Uh, it is all about electric vehicles and how they probably won't save us. Dave. So Ireland has declared it will ban gas and diesel cars by 2030, following a similar EU proposal. 
The move to 100% renewables is at the center of U.S. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal bill. As more cities and countries declare climate emergencies, one of the first places they will look to cut emissions is personal transportation. But many uh, current proposals rely to a large extent on electric vehicles simply replacing fossil fuel-powered cars. This assumption rests on the false premise that no change will be needed in our current transportation culture. But many environmentalists have been raising concerns that electric vehicles present their own set of environmental and social costs, mainly around the metals used in their rechargeable batteries. In June, the Natural History Museum of London published an article detailing many of these challenges, drawing heavily on a letter sent to the UK Committee on Climate Change, <clears throat> co-authored by the museum's head of Earth Sciences, Professor Richard Harrington. The article stated that to replace all the cars in just the UK with electric vehicles would take almost twice the global output of cobalt, half the global output of copper, and three-quarters the world's output of lithium. To make two billion electric vehicles the estimated number of cars on the road worldwide by 2050, yearly global production of these metals would have, would have to double or even triple. Furthermore, the, electric, the energy infrastructure needed to power these vehicles, if it were to come from renewable sources, would further add to the need for these metals, as well as a host of others. In terms of solar power, the, electric, the article states that, quote, all the photovoltaic systems currently on the market are reliant on one or more raw materials classed as critical or near-critical by the EU or the U.S. Department of Energy, such as high-purity silicone, indium, tellurium, and gallium, because of their natural scarcity or their recovery as minor byproducts of other commodities. End quote. Both wind and solar power will also increase the need for other raw materials, including steel, aluminum, cement, and glass. The cost of mining for these metals is high. Even in countries with nominal environmental protections, uh, examples like the Faro mine in Canada's Yukon evince a looming environmental catastrophe in its own right, stemming from a sustained international push to replace gas and diesel vehicles with electric ones. In attention to this, particularly on the part of green entrepreneurs like Travis van der Zanden, the CEO of Bird, and their proponents in the media is of particular concern. Since 2017, thousands of lithium-powered battery scooters have swarmed into urban landscapes around the world, offering zero-emission personal transportation under the aegis of benevolent corporate environmentalism. A recent Yahoo News article questioning the eco-friendliness of eco-scooter services, however, uh, cited two recent studies that throw doubt on claims by these companies that they help reduce carbon emissions. The first study, a survey by French research group 6T, found that 40% of scooter usage in Paris, Lyon, and Marseille was, out of was by out-of-town visitors, with only 19% made up of commuting locals. When asked what they would have done without access to an electric scooter, 44% of them said they would have walked, and 12% said they would have biked. This almost lines up with the claim by Lime, the e-scooter startup funded by, among others, Uber and Alphabet, that one in three scooter trips replaces a car trip. Except... A further 30% uh, said they would have used public transit, making the overlap between scooter riders and car drivers, at least in France, negligible at best. All this to say that people who use electric scooters are not necessarily people who would otherwise be driving. The second study from Louisville, Kentucky, estimated that the average lifespan of an electric scooter was 28 days. 
The disposability of these scooters therefore probably figures heavily in their environmental impact. Each of the companies cited in the article, when asked about these concerns, responded with promises to increase their durability and recycle more of their parts. But the long-term viability of electric scooters, and indeed all forms of personal transportation, have their own set of consequences that must be addressed in light of increasing government concerns, government promises to shift away from fossil fuels, particularly when they involve financial incentives for private sector participation in the greening of the economy. Yeah, so uh, I, I want to highlight a, uh, a, a small news story. It's a local Toronto story, but I think it has a, has a wider impact, which is that the, the TTC employees, uh, specifically the, um, the ones who, uh, who, who the elect- TTC electrical workers, QP, QP Local 2, the unit that represents uh, the people who install all modes of TTC transit, um, are, are, are calling, are protesting and calling for mass strikes uh, and, and, fr- and to do two things. One, to sort of protest the way that Doug Ford has, has been sort of attacking the, the, the TDC, but, but specifically to make public transit free. And free public transit is one of those things that will pretty, feels a little, I think, in that mind of people sort of pie in the sky and in, 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 in impossible. But when you're talking about actually solving the, 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 the problem and actually redesigning the space of the, of the world um, to, to, to get these types of reductions necessary, you know, like to, to sort of briefly jump back to last week's show about the 41 reasons why this green energy transition is not possible. So much of that focused on the idea that we could live that the transition was asking us to live exactly like we do right now, but just with green things. Like that was sort of the underlying assumption of that of that of that thing, which 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 Tim very effectively highlighted when he said that the the majority of the actual change we'd be looking for would come in efficiencies and actually living differently, and and the idea that free and free public transit is. A, a, a an important part of that living differently. You know, the idea that you can still have a mode of transportation that is not your personal vehicle, you know, that that is not your one electric car. You know, like, yes, there are some things that will need still need electric cars, you, you will still need some version of personal transportation, unquestionably, you know, I don't think anyone is trying to argue that there should be a super train that gets you get that get the access an ambulance. You know, like there are specific things where you need as modular movable and the way we've built our cities are right now are, are, are built in a way that you there the idea that getting rid of all cars is, is is in a short timeline is difficult. But when you get these sort of these larger urban centers, you know, saying that they're going to go 100 percent renewable um, or, or, or something like that. And yet they, they can make this claim because the energy sector is not something they really control. You know, they're, th- what they can control are bike lanes. <laughs> what they can control are pedestrian pathways. What they can control are congestion charges. You know, the 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 way to live differently and the way to, to, to that we need to be shaping this our world is in actually allowing people to live differently instead of locking them into you just have to do the same kind of driving, but now with you know with 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 electric vehicles instead of something else. You know, that's. That's the problem here. No, but it's sexy to have a personal vehicle. Get a picture on the on the online dating with your car. Take your loved one to the beach. Yeah, drive. Dr- I'm, I'm going to go throw to Saren. <laughs> so the, uh, the don't worry, I'll cut your guys' mic if I need to here. Uh, so the the thing I want to go to is just the like the 
the larger idea here, and the, with reference to what we were talking about last week with that um, absolutely goofy article, which was more accurately named why nothing short of revolutionary change will do the job, uh, was you could leave that article and just ch- change the headline, and I would have no problem with it <laughs> uh, at all. It was a great argument for why we have to be considering more systemic change. That's exactly what that article was about. But the real problem here is that is one of imagination, um, and I don't. But I, I don't want to get too fluffy about it. The the point is is that people like they can understand like whenever you're trying to whenever whenever you're trying to uh, debug something complex, right? So whenever we're trying to make small adjustments to a complex system, you could use uh, you can imagine in your head. Uh, bunch, bunch, uh, balancing a bunch of cards on a table, whatever. For this metaphor, I'm going to go with my my recent best use, which is code, right? If you've designed, uh, code is complex. If you've designed a complex thing, it, there's something can go wrong and sometimes you have to troubleshoot or sometimes you have to make a change and make sure it works. Now, you can read every line of that or you can do something called a console log, which is basically just like a drip of uh, pink in the water. Or when you go to the hospital, they might put a contrast in your blood and then they scan you, right? And that's because the doctor could go through every cell in your body or they could just drop something in the system and see what happens and follow it through its path. And then that's what you do. That's the same idea of a console log in code. You're just dropping some, some tinted water in the, in the system and watching how's it, how it filters through. That's the only way we're going to be able to do these things and make these complex shifts in a system is to just change starting conditions and just let what happened happen, right? That's why things like putting a price on carbon works because we don't know all the implications. We, this is a very complex system with lots of variables. Some stuff, is, some unanticipated anticipated things are going to happen. The way the reason why these people are slowing it down is because to them they will only accept change where hey look, I get it that the house is on fire, but unless I have the same house in the same place after we're done fighting this fire, I don't accept the solution. The the reason they're saying no is just because they're like, hey, I I hear that we need change, but I'm only okay, okay with change where everything is still in the same place as after the change. That's the problem. And the and the solution to that is that's silly. <laughs> yeah, the solution is we just need a different question. Um, if if this if this show has left you wanting to do something, um, I, I'm going to leave you with a with an ask, which is that uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago uh, we had Sabrina Bowman from uh, Green Pack on, and and she was talking about how much work had gone into getting a hundred debates about the environment, uh, all centered around uh, Dave's birthday, October seventh. And, and the idea was they had 100 different debates from all over the place. And they had intentionally done it this early as a way to ensure that they could get these writings and that people couldn't back out and people couldn't do anything. The, the Canadian uh, Debates Association, uh, the, the, the Set of Leaders Debates uh, Commission, uh, have for some reason decided to host the English language debate on that day, basically quashing months of work around trying to act uh, around specifically this kind of thing. And so the idea that we can't get anything else, the idea, like if you want to have a good chance to have a hundred community debates, uh, look and go to Green Pack, uh, see how they're sort of responding to this and, tr- and try to convince the debates, community, the debates Commission of Canada to change that date or else we are uh, in... You know, we, we've lost a great opportunity for democracy. Mm-hmm. So please check that out and go there. Uh, and for everyone else, have a wonderful green week. We'll see you all next week. Uh, and happy August. Happy August.